0: Coming up on today's Halloween-themed show, we'll talk about The Law of Haunted Houses. How did the whole witches myth get off the ground? It dates back to the 1400s. One book, of course, led to the death of thousands of women. What about vampires? Same thing. The legend of the vampire persists to this day. It goes back even farther. The Law of Haunted Houses. Uh, That's a new book. Well, actually, it's in the latest volume of the UBC Law Review. It's not a book on its own, but... Nonetheless, uh, Reagan Seidler joins us, who authored The Law of Haunted Houses, to tell us all about it. Reagan, thank you for your time today. Appreciate you joining us. Hey, Shay. Happy to be here. This is a really interesting story, and I think it'll be a bit of an eye-opener to a lot of people. Um, when we talk about buying homes in Canada or Alberta, where horrible things have happened, murders, or whatever the case may be, you don't have a right to know that before you buy the property, do you? That's right. And that
1: is a shock to a lot of people yeah. because it happens, frankly, just like in the movies, right? A couple buys a house. It looks perfect. They get a good price. They've done their due diligence, right? They've, they've got the house inspection. They've done the title search. And it's only when they move in, the neighbor comes by and says, well, have you met the little girl in the attic yet? And then... <laughs> then their opinion changes.
0: So what does it say? What what do we have a right to know when we go to buy a home? I mean, is is where's that line? Now, obviously, they don't have to tell you if there's a ghost that lives there or if a horrible thing has happened. Maybe they should. Some people might think. But what do we have a right to know? Generally, the
1: rule in Canada is that sellers are supposed to disclose, disclose hidden defects that make a house dangerous. Alberta is a little uncertain. Some judges think that you should disclose every hidden defect. Um... But in any event, so it's, it's somewhere in that range, right? They're, yeah. they're focused on hidden defects. But courts are saying that when it comes to something like a murder or a ghost, any of those kind of horrible, evil things that are in a home's history, they're saying those just simply aren't defects.
0: Really? Okay. Um, now, what if the realtor wants to tell you? Do, I mean, if they just feel that this is the right thing to do, what is the law around what realtors tell you? Do they have to be
1: fully transparent with you if they decide to take this route? Yeah, realtors have kind of their own rules, right, because they're supposed to be honorable and so on. But I think the message that people have to know is that if, if that information doesn't come from them, right, if they buy a haunted house or a house with anything that that upsets them and, you know, the contract is done, once they're past that point, they they don't have any recourse in court because the sellers were just simply under no obligation in Canada anyway to share that information and and it has shocked people um in bc just a couple years ago there was a famous case where a woman bought a six million dollar home which i mean in vancouver is probably a one bedroom but sure. uh she entered into the contract and then learned from her friend that the seller's son-in-law was murdered outside the front gate in a gang-related killing she tried to get out of the contract and the court said no um you know there was no reason that they should have told this to you so so you're stuck with it. Has this been debated before? Is this something that's gone around uh, through court
0: systems and things like that? Is this something that's been the subject of legal arguments in the past? Oh, this
1: comes up all the time. <laughs> uh, we actually get these rules from England. And in England, there was a famous case where a biologist adopted a young girl as his ward when that was done, yeah, uh, then murdered her and hid her body parts all around the house, right? In the floors and walls and, and whatever. Ugh. So when this house was bought decades later, the purchasers found out that not only was there a horrible event in this uh, home's history, but there were pieces of this girl in their walls. And the court basically said, you know, if, if you didn't want a little girl's body in your wall, you should have asked if if it was there, um, which does seem in some ways kind of unfair. So there's certainly a moral debate about whether this rule Is fair. What is your view? Would you be upset if you found out, you know, there was maybe uh, some child
0: killed in your basement? I think probably. I think I definitely would. I think, you know, that would be something that would be a little bit unsettling. I understand the why they wouldn't want to disclose it. I mean, obviously, you're going to really hurt your resale
1: value. I would think that's the argument against this, right? That's part of it, uh, for sure. I mean, the other argument, though, is that now the buyer is stuck with a home that. They might not be able to resell. But generally, the logic is that it's very difficult to know what might concern a buyer, right? Because some people might be upset by a natural, peaceful death. Others might say that's no problem. Uh, For some people, you know, if you have an exorcism in the middle, does that break the chain? So it's just very difficult to know from a seller's point of view what is worth mentioning. So courts have basically said, let's put the risk of that on buyers. If there's something that they're upset about, they better ask that question because, um, you know, it's, I guess, in their view, the easiest way to solve the problem. Yeah. But it, it leads to problems all the time, right? If you accidentally buy the Amityville Horror House, uh, that's not going to have no impact
0: on your resale value. Absolutely not. So if you ask the question of the realtor, they are legally responsible. They
1: have to tell you the truth. No. No, that's the other thing. If you're a seller of one of these homes and you don't want to disclose, you can just choose to say nothing. Really? The only thing is they can't lie about it. Okay. So you can, you can say, I declined to answer and just kind of roll the dice. But the other scary thing is sometimes the sellers of these houses will actually change the address. So if you go to research your house, uh, you know, to look for crime stories or or whatever it yeah. is, sometimes, for example, the Amityville Horror House has a different address now than it did when it, you know, possessed the, the axe murderer. Fellow. Really? Yeah, so very, it's a, it's a risky business. Now, but the other interesting thing, too, is, you know, most U.S. states actually have a law on this. More okay, than 30 ask, yeah. states have passed a law Canada hasn't, and Alberta hasn't. So there's no one way that this has to be resolved. If your listeners are upset by this, uh, you know, it would be an easy change, If certainly if enough agreed.
0: Yeah, full disclosure. would make sense. Fascinating stuff, (laughs) Rick. It really is.
1: Thanks so much. It's not something you want to walk into, yeah. We'll have a great Halloween. You've got a great Halloween show today, so I'm going to be listening the whole day.
0: Awesome. I appreciate that. Thanks very much. Have a great day, and happy Halloween. For sure you too. Take care. That is Reagan Seidler, author of The Law of Haunted Houses in the latest volume of the UBC Law Review.
2: Oh, look. Another glorious morning. Makes me sick.
0: What was that one? Hocus Pocus. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know Hocus Pocus. It's a Disney movie. They're making a sequel. Oh, okay. I got you. Okay. Oh, that was... um... Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember seeing the commercials for it. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. All right. This is going to be a fascinating discussion. This is going to be really interesting. We're going to talk now about... Well... There's a couple of ways that I want to talk about this in reality. We'll get to the nuts and bolts of the case as a matter on its own merit, but also there's a bigger discussion about conspiracy theories and misinformation and and how these things can spread and what can come of them. We're going to talk right now about witches. Okay? Now if you think back, you you've heard the stories about witches and you know that you know I mean thousands of people were killed because people thought they were witches. How did it get to that point? It all stemmed from a book, a book that went viral, if anything, can go viral way, way back in the 1400s. Apparently they can. This is going to be a good discussion. We have Melissa Chim joining us, who's an adjunct professor and reference librarian, General Theological Seminary. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much for your time this morning. Really looking forward to this.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited.
0: (laughs) Okay, so, so we're talking about a book that sort of spawned the whole witch hunt craze that gripped Europe and then spread to other parts of the world. Tell us about this book. When was it written? What did it say? How far back are we going
1: here?
3: Okay, so we are going back all the way to about 1486, and this book was called The Malleus Maleficarum, and it was written by uh, Kramer and Sprenger. Uh the book itself has about three parts. Um the first part is basically how you can spot a witch. Um also that witchcraft is real and not only is it real, if you don't believe that witches are real then you are um actually committing heresy. Okay. Uh the sec- yeah, the, the second part goes into very graphic detail about um witches what witches do um, how witches kind of cavort with the devil? Basically, but, uh, sex
0: uh, with, with devils is what witches are all about, right? That's basically what uh, it's pretty
3: says. much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it goes into a lot of detail about supposed witches' sexual deviancy and how they um, act that way with the devils, demons, incubi, and how they um, spread their evil actually to children. Uh, even things like eating children. Um, right. And then uh, part three is basically the uh, the law. Per- Portion of the book, how um, how you should try a witch, um, how you can convict her, how to get confessions via torture, um, and also there is a very very small part on what to do if a woman is actually found innocent of witchcraft. But that was a very small section of the book. Most of it, um, most yeah. of that part, is due to the is uh, devoted punishment.
0: Yeah, they, they didn't actually have to use that part very often. Now the book itself, I mean, <laughs> this this is not a weighty tome by any means. It's more like a yeah. Like a, a handbook, right? A pocketbook that you can carry around just in case you need to pull it out for reference.
3: Oh, exactly. The book itself is only about 190 pages long, and it's about um, eight inches or so long. So this is meant to, to travel. It's meant to put in your in your bag, in your coat pocket. So um, it, it was meant to travel far and to be used as, as a guide and a handbook.
0: Okay, now, why was this book written? Uh, wh- wh- where did this book come from? What sort of brought it into existence, and how did it take off the way it did?
3: Alright, so one of the um, authors of the book, Kramer, um, was was very preoccupied with witches. Uh, before he um, actually wrote the book in the late 1400s, he tried to give his uh, to, he tried basically to start his own witch craze himself. He um, attempted to hold uh, witch trials in Germany, but um he was dismissed as senile and crazy. It was only until a few years later that he was able to um converse with the Pope and actually get a um what's known as a papal bull from the Pope to actually um not only to sanction witchcraft trials but to give him and his co author Jacob Sprenger the uh ability to be prosecutors. So um it was uh, the book itself was very popular when it came out. It was published around 1486. The edition that uh, my institution has is from 1492. It went through about 25 editions. And of course, you can see the tracing of this book from being popular um, in Germany, then spreading all throughout Europe, and then ultimately, ultimately making its way to the United States as well.
0: Literally, it went viral. It's ba- it just it like did. things do nowadays.
3: Oh, exactly. Exactly. Um, the idea just caught caught on and it spread like wildfire. And then it was hard to put out after quite a few centuries.
0: It was, was that common? At all? Like I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around how anything went viral in the 14 and 1500s in terms of how the word spread. Did this happen with other books or was this book sort of special in the way that it took off and, and spawned what we know now was just a horrible time in history?
3: right about that in the sense that um, it, the subject matter just captured everyone's imagination so easily. And also when you think back in history in the sense of um, how many people may have been illiterate but they knew um, they knew of the Bible and they knew the stories of the Bible. And so kind of going back to that idea in the Bible of how uh, women are kind of at the root of man's fall, and then bringing it back to this idea of witchcraft and uh, connecting it to women in the sense that women are are committing this ultimate original sin, and then this even greater sin later on, too. Those kind of ideas were, uh, the root of them were already available in society, and I think once they were written down in this book, it was just able to spread, because it it spoke to um, people's fears, uh, people's interests, that kind of fear that we all have in the in the pit of our stomach about what could go wrong this this book capitalized on that and um as far as I know, at least in this century um uh, no other book has no. has really caught on <laughs> like <laughs> like this one did
0: um it, can, can you read this book has it beenre can you get a modern day version of this book? I think it would be fascinating oh, to read in this day and age
3: oh yeah absolutely uh, you can definitely grab a, a copy of this book translated into into English um, pretty much at any any bookseller I, I would think pretty much any popular bookseller you would be able to get, to get a copy of it and then of course uh, there's the option of getting a non-fiction book actually written about this book or about witchcraft in general too.
0: Um, last one before I let you go basically this is uh, it was all women right I mean this was all about women I mean there was not you that dudes can be witches too I mean they said it was theoretically possible, but this was all right. about women, right?
3: <laughs> exactly. See, uh, they, they make, the authors make the concession that, yeah, men can be witches, but for the most part, if a man became a witch, it was because a woman kind of lured him into it. So the definite, the definite emphasis was on, on women and, and the evil women can rob.
0: <laughs> Unbelievable. Just fascinating. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Melissa. I appreciate it.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: You bet. That is Melissa Chim, who is an adjunct professor and reference librarian in general the- at the General Theological Seminary. What happened? Are you okay?
3: He slimed me.
0: That's great! Actual physical contact.
1: Can you move?
3: Ray, Ray,
0: come in, please.
3: I feel
1: so funky. Spengler! I'm with Bankman. You got slime.
0: Why do you say Ghostbusters is a Halloween movie? Did it happen in Halloween time? I don't know, but it feels like Halloween, does not it? Ghosts? Yeah, I mean, Dev- and it's such a good movie. You don't really need an excuse to watch that one. Exactly. Yeah, and the new one's coming out right after Halloween, which makes no, no sense whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, genius. Good move, guys. Get it out before Halloween. It's a perfect Halloween movie for kids. Kids would love it. I don't get it. Um, speaking of, we talked earlier about the whole uh, witch Situation, And a lot of you said, you know, witches are real. Okay, fine. Whatever. Are you going to tell me that uh, Dracula's are real too? Vampires are real? Because that's what we're going to talk about now. We're going to talk about the myth of the vampire, where it came from, how it got started, and how it's led to some um, great, great, great modern day movies and television. I mean, it's it's part of pop culture now. There's no question. But how did that happen? How did it become such a big deal. We are going to chat with Stanley Stepanek, who's an assistant professor of Slavic languages and literatures at the University of Virginia. Uh, Stanley, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Sure. Thank you. Now you are, you taught courses on the vampire myth, right? So you've been studying this for a good long while.
2: Yeah, very long time now. I teach one primary course and I've taught it since uh, about 2007 now is when I started it. It's been a while. Yeah. Um,
0: now, how far back does the vampire story go? When when can we trace its origin story, if you will? Where did it start?
2: Hmm, tough question. Now, important detail there is we actually don't know. The earliest reference we have to the vampire um, in old Russian language, written, written form, is from 1047 A.D. Wow. That's the earliest reference we have to this, but that doesn't mean that's when it started. That's just the earliest we have. Sure, so okay. That's How back far before that? Way. We actually don't know. We actually don't know how far before that.
0: Do we know how it started? What that
2: created idea. it? What sort of the, where it all came from?
0: What you know, what gave it rise?
1: Yeah,
2: well, there are lots of theories about this, because of course, uh since we don't know exactly when it started, that, that's that's one complexity there, but also the Slavic people didn't have a um written language system until after Christianization, we're talking like Ninth century. So okay. you've got probably about a thousand years of cultural development up to that point that are unaccounted for in written sources, really. Not not all written sources, but in first-hand accounts, at least. So the important detail here is that the vampire really represents an idea you see all over the world that the dead can come back in some way. So the question really, I would say, is that, well, why is that? Why, why do people have some sort of need to think that the dead can come back? Like, What, what is it doing for yeah. us functionally? It's like some sort of symbol. What, what is it? So one of the biggest things about the origin of the vampire is it was clearly a symbol of death, of course, but also disease. So one of the big origins of the vampire is actually disease. So you can look at a variety of diseases that might be linked to it, but that's one of the biggest things. There are some other components there for sure, but that's, that's definitely the biggest because that's what its function really was. For a people who had originally no knowledge of viruses, yeah. no knowledge of bacteria, this fills that void in science, right? It, it explains where it comes from and gives something tangible to look at and to use as a symbol, Give us an example in terms
0: of, uh, I know you mentioned rabies uh, as a possible yes. uh, one of the diseases that dro- drove this myth. How do, how do those two work together?
2: R- uh, rabies and the vampire? Yeah. Yeah. So, we do So, you know, scholars have often wonder, well, okay, if it's connected to disease, which diseases are yeah. primary origins? And there's a lot that have been argued. I've heard tuberculosis, for example. But one of the critical things there is, okay, well, do we have any data to support any particular disease over another one? Rabies is one of the ones that we do have data for. We know, for example, that during a um, especially um, widespread panic concerning vampires in Eastern Europe in the 18th century, usually called the Great Vampire Epidemic, that one of the reasons people were actually dying was it was in the middle of a rabies pandemic, actually. So rabies is linked to the vampire there, and we have data to support that, also data going back to roughly a little bit before that in the um, 17th century to verify that there was one problem there within the bounds of Eastern Europe where It was utilized in this reference to the vampire where the vampire was supposed to be causing this disease, which, again, to them, it's mysterious. We know today it's a viral infection. They didn't know that. So the data we have only goes back to about that point. That doesn't mean rabies didn't exist before that, but it gives us some sense of exactly how it must have operated back then. Because without any vaccine, of course, it was spreading and people were being infected and attacking each other. Um, there are cases of whole villages basically being wiped out by this disease where people would just abandon the village because, you know, the people there were infected, so they would just leave, <laughs> and then that was that. But if you think about rabies, you can already think of some certain connections of the vampire, like, you know, spread via biting, for example, being one of the big ones, or hydrophobia, which is fear of water, especially yep. running water. You know, and this is something you see in Dracula, for example, in the novel, that he can't cross running water. So there are some clear connections there, and we can actually verify the connection, to vampire practices with data. So that's why that's one of the biggest ones there.
0: When you talk about vampire practices, how widespread did it become and what kind of impact did it have on societies when it was at its, you know, most virulent, I guess?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a good (laughs) good analogy. Um, (laughs) Well, so we know it was definitely something that was very important in Slavic culture. And then, of course, cultures that were connected with them, like, for example, on people in Romania and Hungary, uh, absorbed some of these traditions. So how widespread did it get? Well, during, in particular, I mentioned the, the great vampire epidemic yeah. in the 18th century. When that happened, then the idea started to then leak into Western Europe, and it became this big topic for academic debate about whether or not the dead can actually come back and, like, drink blood or eat people and things like that. Is this, is this possible? So that's what got Western Europeans really talking about it. But eventually the actual myth was debunked by scientists during the Enlightenment period whenever this was happening, but the idea stuck. So, in terms of like vampire being widespread in original like belief with actual vampire practices with decapitations or putting garlic in a grave or sticking somebody through their torso or, you know, chopping their body into pieces is another thing they would sometimes do. That's um, primarily restricted to Eastern Europe, but we do see it spreading elsewhere. For example, there was a vampire panic in New England in the 19th century. This is one of the things that Bram Stoker actually used for research for his novel Dracula. He was really interested in, well, how'd that get there? Well. If you would actually research the event and the people that were involved in it, you would discover that tuberculosis was uh, rampant in that particular part of the United States, and there was a significant Slavic population. There were miners that were near that area, and they told the people about what this okay. what this was. So that gives some evidence that maybe tuber- tuberculosis was linked to it. But so there you have the vampire and actual practice and decapitations and stuff coming into the United States. There's evidence of it also going into Canada. Um, a place called Vilno, for example, or usually pronounced Wilno by people who see it written um, in Ontario. But in, in every case, what you see is you see some connection to Slavic culture, where it's Slavic people who, you know, emigrated, or they're telling people, you know, about this this thing that they pretty much had never heard of, and then they're applying it to their own, you know, cultural landscape and stuff like that. So they brought the yeah. myth with them, so to speak. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. And of course, it persists today, just, I think, because it's It's so interesting. It's so cool, right? I mean, basically, that's why we still talk about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah,
0: exactly. Very cool. All right. Uh, Thank you so much for your time this morning, Stanley. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that's Stanley Stepanek, who um, is an assistant professor of Slavic languages and literatures at the University of Virginia and has studied the Dracula myth going back a long, long way. I didn't realize that the first recorded instance of the vampire myth was in like 1042. That's, that's going back a ways and it's still alive today. Along with the witch's one that we talked about earlier. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and
2: review us.